have an encounter with the Spirit, an encounter with you this morning. And Lord, I thank you so much for this song. It says, I won't boast in anything but Jesus Christ. That I'm not going to boast in anything that has happened on this earth except for the fact that you got up and you walked out of the tomb. Your death and your resurrection, that's what I boast in. Lord, when I walk into a place, when we walk into our our social environment, we bring that with us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that sinks in this morning. We bring the Spirit. And Lord, this morning as we continue, we don't want to move forward without more of you. So in this moment, Lord, I ask that you would increase the Spirit in this room. Lord, that you would increase your presence in this room. There's something that you want us to learn this morning. There's something you want us to get this morning. Increase the spirit in this room, Lord. We want to have an encounter with Jesus and walk out of here having been showered with your presence. Submerged in your presence, Lord. We don't want to move forward. We don't want to continue with the service until you're here. And Lord, we pray for more, more. Just bring it. More, Father. More, Father. More, Jesus. You're speaking to us right now. I know you are. Yes, Lord. We just want to rest in you. Whatever you're doing in this moment, Lord, you have jurisdiction in this moment. Come on, Father. Come on, Father. Yeah, more of it, Lord. Yeah, more of it. Come on. Come on, Jesus. Yes, Lord. What you're putting in us right now, Heavenly Father, is specific for something... That we've been struggling with. Something that we need you, more of you in. Lord, you're filling us up right now so we can operate out of our overflow. Continue to pour into us. Fill up our cup. Come on, Jesus. Yes, Father. Lord, we thank you for being here. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen, Amen, Amen. I love times like that. Just get to listen to the Lord, see what He's saying, see what He's doing. Now, um, last week, Beck had this table, and it looked like it worked. But you gotta understand, Beck's a foot taller than I am. So, I mean, it's like the table is like right here to him, but to me, I just feel like, hey, what am I gonna do with this, you know? <laughs> So, I'm not going to use the table. I'm going to stick with the podium. Or stand. Whatever you want to call it. But thank you for being here this morning. Um, you could be anywhere else, but you've chosen to spend your time with us. And for that, I am unbelievably grateful. But just want to start out by just letting you guys know that the past month or so, you've had some of me. You've had some of Beck. Mostly Beck. 
um, because I've had to fill in in the drums and help out other places. And just so you know, I'm willing to do that. Your pastor's willing to plug holes wherever they need to be plugged and jump in wherever I'm needed. But I just got to say, I don't like not being in front of you on a Sunday morning. I just love being able to speak and look at you guys and see what God is doing and communicate as a shepherd would communicate. And so you just got to know that this is like this is what I'm most passionate about is being in front of you guys. But thank you for um, supporting Beck as he was up here. I'm not saying that you wouldn't, um, but you're going to get a lot of him in the month of July simply because I'll be on vacation. Uh, Beck is on vacation right now, so pray for him. He's driving across country with his his wife and his sister and um, his nephew. So pray for them in their travels as they get some time and some rest. Um, but I just, the reason why I like being up here is because I like you guys to be able to hear from your pastor. Like I, I'm your shepherd. I'm I'm the, the kind of the guy out front that. Really, honestly, it just means that if something happens, I get in trouble. I'm the one that takes the fall, takes the blame for most things. It's really what that means, but at the same time, um, there's things that I, I just want to be able to communicate to you, not via announcements, not via someone else, but just here's what the Lord's saying. Um, and I didn't say this in first service, but I think I'm going to say it now, is that we're coming to a place where... And I'm going to talk about this building real quick um, in reference to the land that we have been under contract with. And all of that points towards something. It points towards building this community within this church, within among these people. That we're coming to a place where I feel as though it's hard to do that in Hilton. That we need a place where we can say we're going to spend all of our time, me specifically, not worrying about trailers, not worrying about all this other stuff. I just want to take care of the flock and spend time building this church. We're getting to a place where that's becoming more and more real. And we've moved from, uh, and they might get mad at me for saying this, But something else has come across our table where we might be able to get into a building very soon. And so I don't want to overstep my boundaries as the pastor and not consulting the uh, campaign team before I say all this stuff. But I feel like the Lord's saying, look, just let them know that we're in a place where this is this is this could happen in the next month and we won't be meeting in the Hilton anymore. And we will be able to have a place that, hey, we can call it home. So I just want you guys to be praying for that, alright? Because building this thing, man, I want to do that. I want to see all these seats filled. Not for the sake of people being here, but because what we're doing is is working. Amen? I don't. So, uh, the whole process of all of that is pertaining to this word that the Lord is saying is more important than I've given it it requires more time and more thinking than than what I've been giving it. And it's this word unity. That as I've I've kind of sat back and been able to watch from playing the drums or sit out here and listen to Beck preach and in my own personal life and in um, with the staff and in with the leadership, with the council, that the war on unity is starting to go up. 
it's starting to get heavy. And I'm starting, not necessarily starting, but continuing to realize the seriousness of what it means to be a unified people. Because I'll say this, uh, we don't have a building, we have a ballroom. We always have to come in and set up our own stuff. Children's ministry is up in some weird rooms, you know. Um, but what I appreciate is that we're a unified people, regardless. Now, here's what I'm saying. ESS is great at some things. We're not good at some other things. There's some things we need to get better at. We can become more of a unified people. But once we get close to a, a destination, a place where the, the Lord wants us to be, you better believe. The enemy starts to try to make it an inside job. You remember two weeks ago that message that I preached? The war on unity, an inside job. He's going to try to get me against Misty. He's going to try to get me against Jeff. Or my mom. He's going to start there. Because if he can get it to implode from the inside, he doesn't have to do any work. Right? We're learning that through Nehemiah as well. This boy has been building some stuff. Leading the charge in building this uh, this wall. And the enemy has done so much oppositionally to get this boy off of his task. He's been boisterous. He's been loud. He's throwing up neon signs, whatever those would, the equivalent of those would be back in those days. Saying, hey, you're wrong. You're not doing this right. If even if a fox jumped on this thing, it would crumble. And then he moves to the people. By way, in chapter 5 of Nehemiah, by way of this word called usury. And usury is basically the, an excessive interest charged to a loan. Now, in Deuteronomy, we saw that that was against the law from brother to brother. Well, here's what they were doing. They were feeding off of each other. And that's how the enemy was like, okay, I'm going to go inside the wall. I'm going to try to get it to implode from the inside and get people to feed off of people. See, Nehemiah nipped that in the bud right away. He got angry and he confronted it. He did it in a in a godly way. We saw that all through chapter 5. Alright, then Beck gets up here and he preaches on this word that smacked me in the face. And I have not been able to get away from this word since. And it's this word called discernment. Because we see Nehemiah, uh, excuse me, the enemy's tactics go from, let me see if I can get at these people and, and, and make it implode from the inside, to here's what I'm going to do now. We're at a place where there are no cracks in the wall. So the only entry that I have is through the front door. And let me tell you this. The enemy is not afraid to come through the front door. He's not. Alright, and so that's what he did. Comes to Nehemiah by way of Sambalot and Tobiah and says, you know what? Nehemiah, let's just, let's stop. Let's just stop the bickering, the fighting. It hasn't worked. But why don't you just come on down to this village or this, this valley called Ono? Let's talk, right? Let's talk about it. And Nehemiah's discernment in this moment was impeccable. And he just simply says, what is wrong with you? What makes you think I'm going to leave what the Lord asked me to do so we can just go chat? That makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And that didn't work. So, what we're going to read in Nehemiah 4, excuse me, 6, 10 through 14, is something that started way back in the Garden of Eden. Alright? The enemy is saying, you know what? 
I can't get at the people. I can't get at Nehemiah's relationship with the people. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to get Nehemiah to question his relationship with the Lord. Now the very first postmodern statement that was ever presented, antichrist statement that was ever presented was from the enemy, from the devil in the Garden of Eden to Eve. The Lord said, do not eat from that tree. Let me, let me give you just, let me, let me tell you what that means. Let me expand on that. Don't eat from it. There we go. That's what that means. <laughs> simple. Very simple. And the enemy comes up to Eve and he just says one little thing. He says, did God really say that? See, he was attacking, not Eve. He was attacking her ability to hear God's voice. Did he really say that to you? Now, we see the same thing in these, in these verses. I'm going to read this and then we're going to go to some other scripture because this word discernment, I think we're just on the tip of the iceberg with this thing. I really do. Beck did a great job bringing some components of it. I think there's more here and there probably might be more down the road. But the enemy is saying, if I can just get Nehemiah to question what God has said to him, then I'm going to get in there. I got my, my foot in the door. Now, anybody in here, have you guys ever been in a, in a situation ever in your life? Probably not. Where you've needed discernment? <laughs> ever? Anyone? Yeah? Get some hands, nods, laughs, all that stuff. Yeah. In this moment, Nehemiah needed some serious discernment. Very serious discernment. His tactics were not working. The enemy was not working. So as I explained to you, he's, he's going to try to uh, get at Nehemiah's relationship with the Lord. Now there was a statement that Beck made about discernment that stuck with me. And he said that in the word discernment is the difference, knowing the difference between right and wrong. And that's very true. Where it gets sticky is that discernment is also... Knowing the difference between right and almost right. What is truth and what looks like truth. Well, let me say this. Almost right is all wrong. So then it obviously goes back to discernment is the difference between right and wrong. But I then start to ask myself this question. What is my almost right? Because if I'm unwilling to look at the things that I try to justify... The things that I say are almost right, even if I know it. Am I willing to to look at that and let the Lord take it and say, hey, this isn't right. It's almost right, but it's not right. And this may resonate with you. It may not. But here's what it is for me sometimes in some situations. We have, uh, let me just read it. Read this statement. Have we become good identifiers of the problem? But people who cease to step into the, uh, the resolution of the problem. Does that make sense? So here's what it is for me sometimes. I can step back and I can look at discernment and I can say, here's, here's, I can identify what it looks like to be walking in discernment. All of these things, I know what that looks like. And I've removed myself and I'm looking at these two um, 
these two ways of be behaving. The, the one over here is, I know what it looks like to not be walking in discernment. How often do we become just good identifiers of our problem? But in the same sense, you got to understand, I've stepped back and I'm looking at these two things. And what am I doing? I'm just standing here. I am not moving and I am not functioning in anything. I'm simply a fruit inspector. So for me, my almost right or my ability to say, hey, I know what the problem is. Somehow satisfies something in me that I've arrived somewhere. No, you haven't. The point at which you can see that you've arrived somewhere is if there's fruit from the identification. You're either going to step into discernment or you're going to realize that you're not in discernment. And then something has to happen. Either way, you've got to be doing something. You guys trucking with me on that? And again, Beck did a great job bringing... What discernment is, what it looks like to be walking in it, what it looks like to not. How Nehemiah did that in the first nine verses of of chapter 6. But there's this difference between right and almost right. And I want to continue this discussion in this. How to gain discernment. How How do I gain it? How do I get it? What if you had the answer to that question? Hallelujah. All my asking... And problems would be solved right away. Let me ask you this question right now. Are you walking in discernment as I speak? As you write? As you listen? Are you walking in discernment right now? We'll get back to that question. If you needed discernment, and here's the kicker. If you needed discernment right now, would you know what you're getting is from him? Or is it from you? Man, that's a big question. Oftentimes, we pray for discernment. We want it to come. It does. And then we start questioning it. Oh, was that me? Was that because of something that I want? Or is that what the Lord is really, really saying? I have peace about it, but then I don't have peace about it when I woke up. There's all this stuff that we throw into the pot, and it's like, that doesn't even need to be there. But if you ask for discernment right now and he gave it to you, would you be able to know the difference between that being his voice and that being your voice? Sometimes for me, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know. I'll be straight up. I'm the guy who's supposed to know. And I don't sometimes. Well, that kind of brings us to this title. It says the irreducible complexity... Of discernment's simplicity. Kind of a mouthful. The irreducible complexity of discernment's simplicity. And here, here's what I'm going to give you this morning. As I believe that as we are on the, the tip of the iceberg with this thing called discernment. That discernment isn't necessarily a destination as much as it is a part. It what's makes excuse me, it is what makes the journey the journey. It makes up your journey. It's not a place that you want to arrive, because if you arrive at discerning something for a certain situation, then what? Is life over? Are you done living? No. There's more. 
Discernment helps the journey, pushes the journey along, but it's not a destination. But there's components to discernment. There's things that if you were to pull any one of those things out, discernment would cease to be discernment. And I want to explain to you this morning through Nehemiah and through three other passages about this word called discernment and how you can gain discernment today. Now, here's what I'm saying. I cannot speak for the Lord into your life. He's got to speak to you. What happens is I can confirm things. I can get words from the Lord, but at the same time, what we're going to read here is that you still have to go take that back to him. You still got to do that. So discernment and hearing those little intricacies and details is still between you and God, your relationship with him. But I'm saying that discernment in and of itself, if it doesn't have these components to it, what we end up doing is inserting our own self Inserting our own way of doing things. Are you guys checking with me on that? So let's look at these. First I'm going to read Nehemiah 6. 10 through 14. So we can understand the context. Of why it is so important that this man needs. Discernment in this moment. Uh, Nehemiah 6 verse 10. It says when I entered the house of Shemaiah. The son of Deliah. Son of Mehetabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy. Hang on to that one. He uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin. So that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, oh my God, Tobiah and Sambalot, according to these works of theirs. And also Noadiah. The prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Hopefully what I've done in opening up this book since the first of the year and kind of giving you guys the history behind Nehemiah and why he's even on the scene. We had a chance to go through the book of Haggai and it was specific to people being called out of exile. Nehemiah is the same thing. Well... You got to understand the sensitivity of the situation of what we just got done reading. I hope that I've done a good job in communicating to you the reason why those people, the Israelites, even went into exile. I hope I did that right. And if not, I'm going to explain it to you real quick. They went into exile because they were behaving in an unbecoming way. And what the Lord did is he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to these people and they denied every single one of them and just said look we're not going to listen we're not going to do it so here we are in a situation where Nehemiah is speaking or being spoken to by a prophet see what the enemy does is he doesn't just come after the face value things 
he tugs on some heartstrings. He tugs on something that was that cre- created friction between the Lord's people and the Lord, and he's trying to catch Nehemiah in it. Do you got? Do Do you understand that? So. Of course this guy is going to be like, look man, I need discernment right now. Because here is a situation that caused these people to go back into, excuse me, to go into exile because they weren't listening to prophets. Now obviously this is a false prophet, okay? We know that. But nonetheless, in the moment, Nehemiah needs discernment. Have you ever needed discernment when somebody comes and says something to you who's within this church? Or in the body of Christ. It sounds like something. And I'm not calling everybody false prophets and don't go say something to somebody. I'm not saying that. But here is what I'm saying. Can you hear the Lord's voice? Do you have enough discernment in you to be able to differentiate between your voice and the Lord's voice? Their voice and the Lord's voice? Clear the noise. Who in here wants that? Anyone? Okay. Hey, I want it. And I have to get back to this point. I cannot tell you what the Lord is trying to say to you. Only you can hear that. My only job is to say, okay, what does the word say about the components of hearing his voice? Alright? Irreducible complexity. Everybody know what that is? If you don't, shake your head. It's okay. I'm about to explain it to you. It's good stuff. Irreducible complexity. It was derived in the scientific world. Okay, but to kind of put it in layman's terms, let me read it like this. It's a term used to describe a characteristic of certain complex systems or system whereby they need all of their individual components in place in order to function. You got to hear the in place in order to function part. So basically what that means is that if I have something right here and I remove a piece of it, it ceases to function in its originality. So let's just take a vehicle, a car. All right. Simple. But at the same time, don't don't take my analogy and run crazy with it because a car can function without windshield wiper blades or rear view mirrors. And some of you guys drive as if you don't have rear view mirrors. Or blinkers or anything like that. Um, but we'll, okay, don't hold that against me. What I'm saying is that major components. If you were to remove an engine out of a car, it would cease to function as a vehicle. Mode of transportation. You could still call it a car. It'd sit there as a car, but it would cease to function as that. Same thing if you pop those wheels off. You ain't going nowhere. Turn that sucker on and sitting upon some cinder blocks, that'd be funny. But it ceases to function in its original purpose. Take the body off of that whole thing. Go 80 miles an hour down I-25. It's going to hurt. Okay, rocks are going to flip up and hit you in the face. You remove any part of that vehicle, it ceases to function as that. And I'll get to another analogy later on in this message. But that's what irreducible complexity is. Let's hook discernment up to that. Discernment is an irreducible, has irreducible complexity to it. If you remove any one of the components that make up discernment, it ceases to function as discernment. Are you trucking with me? So what we're going to do through scripture, not Alex's opinion, 
is see what the word says about discernment. What does the word say about us, where we're from? Okay? What does the word say about discernment? And then how do we hook that back in to Nehemiah in his situation? And then, ultimately, our relationship with the Lord. So hopefully you're not completely lost at this point. To begin with, let's get in the right place when it comes to discernment. And there's two things that I want to give you at the beginning. I'm going to give you a total of four, and then that fifth one is more of an example of the functioning of discernment than anything else. But I'm going to give you four components, alright? And here's the first one. And hear me when I say this, and I think you need to write this one down. Here's the first one. Discernment is synonymous Synonyms or synonymous means the same thing, meaning the same thing. It might be a different word, but discernment is synonymous with biblical thinking. Discernment is synonymous with big, uh, biblical thinking. Now, oftentimes we need discernment because the world says one thing, but the Spirit says something different. We need discernment because man says one thing, but God says something different. So I need to sift through this conundrum. Okay, well, where do we go in the Word to get at this difference, this conundrum, all right? You can turn if you want to, John 15, 18, and 19. I'm just, now I'm not going to turn there, but to paraphrase what's in, in that is, this is Jesus speaking to this, the disciples, and he says to them, we are in the world, but not of it. We are in the world, but not of it. Now, why am I starting here when it comes to discernment? Well, if discernment is biblical thinking, then I have to think biblically about where I'm from, about who I am. I have to start there. If we are not, excuse me, if we are in this world but we're not of it, then what's the the other side of that statement? I am not in this world as a fleshly being. I'm a spiritual being. I am a spiritual being not trying to figure out, excuse me, a fleshly being not trying to figure out the spirit. But I am a spiritual being made by Christ trying to wade through this physical world. Do you catch me on that? That discernment is synonymous with biblical thinking and that points me back to number two. And these two go hand in hand and I'm starting with these two specifically for a reason. And here's number two. Discernment is a spiritual matter. That if I am not from here, you and I are not from here. We're not from this earth. We operate in the spirit. How is discernment any different? When I make discernment a physical matter, an experiential matter, based on what I've been through matter, then you better believe it's going to be hard to hear. But when I keep it where it's supposed to be, a spiritual matter, then it begins to function in my life. Now, I haven't gotten to the other two, but let's just take those two. And the reason why I'm starting with those two is because if you pull any one of those out, let me just start with biblical thinking, but I take spiritual it being a spiritual matter out of the equation, then I become a Pharisee. I become a guy who knows all the scripture and can spit out every single 
uh, scripture memorization that I possibly can at every situation and it's void of the revelation through the Spirit. The revelation of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. Does that make sense? If I'm just trying to discern in the Spirit and I pull the biblical part of it out, I have zero understanding of Christ's character. I'm just feeling good about everything and it's just just a spiritual matter. Let's just spiritualize, hey, the paper fell off onto the floor. What does that mean? Oh my goodness, Lord, give me discernment. It fell this way and let Stop. We become so wrapped up in being spirit-led that we have no grounding. That's what scripture does. It grounds us. Now, when those two work together... And I am biblically minded and think biblically and let the Spirit reveal things through the Word of God to me. You better believe discernment comes just like that. Because you know. You guys with me on that? Alright. Now the scripture that's hooked up to number two. Discernment is a spiritual matter. The way I seek discernment cannot be of this world. It has to be of the spirit. Okay. What does the word say about discernment being a spiritual matter? It's a good question. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. And I'm going to read 19 through 22. 1 Thessalonians 5. Okay, and this is the author communicating something about Christian conduct. The way you're supposed to carry yourself as a believer. Alright? And this is specific to spiritual matters. And this is specific to prophecy. Someone says something to you. This is a situation that Nehemiah's in. Someone prophesied. False prophet, obviously. But nonetheless, it's a sensitive situation. So here's what this says. Verses 19 20, 21, and 22. It says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. So you know what that says? It says whether it's a false prophetic utterance or a true one. Don't despise it. Don't quench the spirit. But here's what I need you to do. But examine everything. All of it. But you can't miss out on this next word. It says, but examine everything carefully. That's a big one. Because I'll tell you what, sometimes I examine things critically. There's a difference between examining carefully and examining critically. He's saying, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. Don't stiff arm the Lord. But examine everything carefully, okay, and hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. That helps us understand that discernment is a spiritual matter and it brings us to number three. Where in this do you say or do you see that it says in the morning in your quiet time, don't quench the spirit. But when you go to work and that one coworker just says something that gets under your skin, that you need to quench the spirit at that point. It doesn't say that. I'm asking, at what point do we see in this, this verse or these verses where it tells us to stop doing this or to clock in 
to this and then clock out of it. I'm guilty of that. Unbelievably guilty. That when I want or need discernment, I step into what it means to seek after that. But when I'm done, I clock out. Now, how do I relate this to you guys before I give you number three? As a CSU football player, we spend 14 to 16 weeks in it every single day. You got a routine. You go to practice. Before practice, you're warming up. You get your ankles taped. There's all kinds of craziness that is uh, attached to that. Come December, you go to a bowl game. You don't go to a bowl game. Bowl game. All of a sudden, it's finished as quick as it started. All right? No more routine. My mind isn't in it anymore. A couple months go by, we start up spring ball. All of a sudden, I have to get my... It takes a while for me to get back into the swing of things. Okay, maybe you are understanding where I'm going with this. What about a three-day weekend for work? Thursday comes, you're done. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm out. Friday, you're good. Saturday, you're good. Sunday morning, you're good. Sunday afternoon, you're good. Mid-afternoon, you're like, oh. Sunday night, you're like, wow. I hate my life. Number one, you should probably get a different job. <laughs> but number two, you've been out of it, and all of a sudden you've got to regenerate yourself and jump right back into it. This is not saying that discernment is something you can do that with. You have to be in it all the time. Not just in times where you need the Lord to say something. Are you guys chucking with me? That's number three. Not only is discernment synonymous with biblical thinking, discernment is also a spiritual matter. And discernment is something that you have to operate in 100% of your day. Because it makes it hard when you step in and step out. And do a little bit, of, okay, I'm good, alright, I got what I needed to get. Does that make sense? Discernment must be walked in. All the time. Okay, so why is it so important to walk in it all the time? Two things. And turn over to 1 John. 1 John 4. We see Nehemiah being confronted again. Doesn't surprise him by Samblot, Tobiah. But there was no warning for this type of confrontation. When... Have you ever had any warning of anything? Any kind of inkling that, uh, big or small, that something massive was about to happen to you? In hindsight, you can look at it and be like, wow, yeah, I saw that coming. But in the moment, how often are you always like, this is what's going to happen today, and I'm going to have to ask for discernment around 11.23 a.m.? You don't know. So that's why walking in discernment all the time is so important. But here's the other part of it. That when you step into a situation that you need discernment in, here's what we read in 1 John. And this is uh, speaking to the discernment of spirits. Testing the spirits. Here it says in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but, I love this, test the spirits. To see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you know, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Hmm. That seems pretty simple. The reason why you need to be walking in this discernment all the time is because there's going to come moments in your life where you need to test what's being said. The only time the word says test the Lord, it's not about testing God. In Malachi 3.10, it's the only place the Lord says test me. And it's in relationship to finances. That's it. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't test the Lord. What he's saying is I've given you free will enough that if something comes about, I want you to test that spirit. And here, this brings us to number four. But I want to read through these these next few verses so that we can understand number four more clearly. Obviously, verses one through three communicate that Jesus is the measuring stick. But I'm going to take you one deeper because these verses take us one deeper. In verse three, it says, uh, I read that, yeah, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from Christ, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in this world. You are from God, little children. Hmm. Believe that. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Did you hear me, church? Greater is he who is in you. Than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth. And the spirit of error. There it is again. Knowing between right and wrong. Truth. And error. But this speaks back to the spiritual matter. The discernment is the spiritual matter. And it communicates very clearly. Look, we're not from here. We don't operate in the flesh. We have to operate in the spirit. And this is where we get number four in conjunction with the measuring stick. Yeah, the measuring stick is Jesus. But let me say this. The measuring stick has to be a superior spiritual authority. Which is Jesus. And you got to catch those words. Superior. Greater than you. Spiritual. Not the flesh. Authority. That's a big one. We live in a time nowadays where authority isn't necessarily held in its right place anymore. People will so freely get on any social media outlet and just bash President Obama. Now, you may not agree with this man, and he may be off in left field. But that man is our president. And the authority that comes with that office is something that we have lost sight of. Which causes us to let authority slip in the rest of our lives. And you know what it does? It causes us to let the authority of scripture slip in our lives. Not only is discernment synonymous with biblical thinking, but it's a spiritual matter. And it's something that I have to walk in all the time. And the measuring stick 
has to be a superior spiritual authority in my life. Because if it's not, guess what it trumps? The first one. Biblical thinking gets chucked out the window. Because scripture has no authority in my life. Then guess what happens? You insert your own authority in those moments. Which I'll be honest with you, I have none. All of our authority, ladies and gentlemen, is on loan from Jesus. And he says that in his word. Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and 20. Right before that he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Okay. It's been lined out for you. There it is. All of our authority is on loan. But if I insert my own limited, sinful, fleshly authority into my situation, then that's where my discernment comes from. My experiences, what I think needs to happen, and the authority of how I think it needs to be done. You guys chucking with me? So we got these four components, alright? You pull any one of those out of there, it ceases to be discernment. That's the irreducible complexity of discernment's simplicity. Are you chucking with me? Okay. Okay. I like that we're in the same vehicle. It's good. And here's why the measuring stick has to be Jesus. This is not an informational measuring stick. This is a relational measuring stick. And there's, there's a big difference between the two. This measuring stick is not just information. I know about Jesus. I know who he is. I know about his character. As much as the measuring stick is, I have experienced Christ. And I have experienced his character. And he tells me to test these spirits. Okay. How am I going to know if Jesus is in this or if he's not? Well, have you experienced him? You'll know if you've experienced him. So don't quench the spirit. See how all of that connects? Now we look at Ephesians 4.15 and also uh, Philippians 1. That's the last verse. Philippians 1, 9 and 9 through 11. I think we only have 9 and 10 up here. Yes. But Ephesians 4.15 says this. I got to speak the truth in love. Whoa. Lord ever given you somebody else's mail? And all of a sudden you got to speak the truth in love and it's going to be hard to say. But you're trying to gain discernment on how to say it. Okay, well if I need discernment, i got to be biblically minded in this. If I'm biblically minded in this, I know that it can't come from me. It's a spiritual matter. It's got to come from the Lord. I've been walking in it. It's great. The other narrative is that I haven't been walking in it. Now i got to step into it. Here we go. Let faith work. But i got to understand that this is only going to happen by way of Jesus. Uh, 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 let me say this, to the measure of the stature that belongs to Jesus. That's the way it's going to come across as being uh, the, the, tr- the truth being spoken in love. I need discernment in this. If I'm biblically minded, let's go to uh, J- um, Philippians 1. It's right after Ephesians. Philippians 1, verses 9 to 11. And let me read this. It says this. 
This is Paul and Timothy speaking to the people at Philippi, the church at Philippi, opening up this, this chapter. Gets to verse 9 and he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound. Okay, abound means more, means large amounts. Now, First John says God is love. All right? What I need to be able to do, and I'll probably come back and hit this again at some point, is get the, the uh, Hebrew or, excuse me, Greek interpretation of that l- word love in that context. Um, but nonetheless, he's saying, and this I pray that your love, that Jesus may uh, come in large amounts still more and more in two things. Real knowledge, okay, and all discernment. What does that mean? What's real knowledge? Especially being in a place where CSU dominates this city. HP dominates this city. Knowledge dominates this city. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Okay, turn to Proverbs one, one seven. Let's see where real knowledge comes from. This is what it means to be Biblically minded to dive into the word. I gotta be able to get to this. Come on, Alex. Proverbs 1, 7 says this. One more page. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want real knowledge? It's gotta start with the fear of the Lord. Oh, I've heard that so often. Okay, well, God's probably trying to say something to you, if you've heard it a lot. That if you want real understanding, the next part of this verse says, fools despise wisdom. I do not want to be a fool and despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Okay, turn over, turn over to chapter 9 in Proverbs. talks about wisdom. Proverbs 9, verse 10. It says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Knowing Christ, but knowing is an intimate term. It's not just knowledge up here. It's experiential. It's not informational. It's experiential with the Father. So if I want my love to abound still more and more in real knowledge, it's got to start with the fear of the Lord and all discernment, biblical thinking, not stepping out of discernment, understanding that it's a spiritual matter, and knowing that my measuring stick is Jesus. You guys with me? Finishing up this Philippians piece. Here it is. It says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. We pray for things. We ask for discernment. I think that the Lord gives us that discernment pretty quick. But here's the thing. Here I am, hanging on to this situation, white-knuckled. Praying for discernment in this thing, and I'm super like close to it. And the Lord parades discernment right in front of me. If I'm not operating in these things... I will not be able to see that which is excellent. That's what this verse is saying. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. See, I think he answers us fairly quick. I don't know that. I know that for me, sometimes I ask for discernment. 
he'll say something and then I ask myself, was that me or was that him? He's given me the answer, but I'm so white-knuckled hanging on to this other thing and I haven't operated in all of these uh, components of discernment that I can't even recognize that which is uh, excellent. And then the last part of this verse, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, and then verse 11, I should have put this in there, but I didn't. Having been filled with the fruit, okay, the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Righteousness is translated as that which God approves. If I'm asking for the fruit of that which he has approved, then that means that when I'm operating in discernment, in its fullest, and I got all these components, and I haven't pulled one of those out of there, there should be fruit from that. And that fruit should look exactly like what the Lord has approved. So there's the measuring stick, and then there's also a grading rubric, those of you who are teachers. (laughs) He's saying, test the spirits. Here's what I need you to test them up against. Does it have Jesus in it? Sweet. And if it does, it will have the fruit of that. Are you guys with me on that this morning? Hopefully I have not bored you to sleep. So let's go back to Nehemiah real quick. And again, I'm going to start up in verse 12. It says, Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. See, there was a lot that Nehemiah did in the beginning where he first heard about the state of Jerusalem He mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. There was a massive emotional response. And he had to pray for 120 days, four months, whatever it was. Long time. Some other things start to happen. Sambalot, Tobiah, opposition. And Nehemiah has to remove himself. He has to pray to the Lord. He's got to talk to him because he needs discernment in that area. But it's not like he had to fast for 120 days every single time. Alright, the last time we see a little bit of an emotional response was when he figures out that the people are feeding on the people. He gets angry. Says, look, this isn't going to happen. And then the opposition is saying, let's just be diplomatic. At this point, Nehemiah has spent so much time with the Lord that he doesn't need to fall on his knees and fast and pray unless the Lord asks him to do that, okay? He spent so much time with him. Something comes up that doesn't look like the Lord. And he's just like, I'm sorry. That's not correct. That is not it. And here we see the same thing. Nehemiah in a very, very, very sensitive situation. Where the enemy is trying to tug on these heartstrings. Friction between those people in the Lord. The Israelites and the Lord. With this prophecy, this prophetic stuff. And all he said was, I perceived that you were not from the Lord. Spirits were being tested and it didn't look like God. At all. There's an irreducible complexity that is inserted here. 
that Nehemiah discerned, his discernment was excellent based on his encounters with God, his thinking, his biblical thinking, his, his God-like thinking, and it being a spiritual matter. He never stepped out of that functioning. You can read that all the way from verse 1, chapter 1, up until now. Nehemiah never ceased. He's an amazing leader. He just never stopped approaching the throne. And God was always the measuring stick. Always. But more importantly, his authority, the Lord's authority in Nehemiah's life was the foundation of it all. I'm going to make this last statement. Discernment is synonymous with biblical thinking. It's a spiritual matter. You can't step in and out of it. And it has, the measuring stick has to be Jesus. But I'll wrap this up by saying this. That discernment is an authority issue. It's an authority issue. If you lack discernment in any area of your life, is there authority? Does the Lord have authority over that part of your life? Because if he does not, what he says through his word about that part of your life, we will do everything that we can to rationalize ourselves into our own comfortability. And I just got to be real with you on that one. I do. I'm sorry I'm not sorry. Because I'm getting convicted on this one too. But irreducible complexity. If you pull out any one of those Attributes. It ceases to be discernment. Okay. Let's talk about your relationship with the Lord. How often do we pull out certain things that he's said this needs to be in there? And if it's not, we cease to function in the fullness of who we are. Your relationship with the Lord is an irreducible complex system. He asks you to pray. He asks you to worship. He asks you to fellowship. He asks you to give. There's a couple other ones I'm leaving out here. But nonetheless, why is it that we want to operate in the fullness of who Jesus is, yet deciding willingly to pull out these pieces and think that it's going to work? It's an irreducible, complex system. But it's perfect when everything is in there. The details of it, man, spend the rest of your life trying to figure those out. Amen. Because that's where the word comes in and we dive into that every single day. Are you guys with me this morning? Discernment is irreducible comp- has irreducible complexity to it. Your relationship with the Lord has irreducible complexity to it. Remove any one of those little things ceases to function that way. This last example is I can get the the worship team to come up and let's get prepared for our offering. If I was to pull something out of my hand and put it here that has a little platform on it, right? It's got a little bar, flips over. It's got a spring on that bar. Then it's got this little lever, okay, that holds the bar down. And then it's got this little thing that holds that lever and you put some food, a little piece of cheese on that thing, right? What am I talking about? Mousetrap. I just explained all of what a mousetrap is without saying that it's a mousetrap. If I pulled that out and put it on my hand, you would know what that is. 
a vehicle or a car, there's a lot of components to a vehicle. But what I'm saying is that let's take it down to its least common denominator. A mousetrap is an irreducible complex system. You remove any part of that mousetrap, the bar, the, the spring, the lever, whatever, even the little staples or whatever it is that's holding some of that stuff in there, it ceases to function as a mousetrap. So this irreducible complexity business, man, it permeates throughout a lot of our lives. That we cannot have this a la carte relationship with the Lord. Here's what I want, here's what I don't want. You guys can come up here. But I'll say this, is if that's how we're living, there's going to be fruit from it. And that fruit is either going to produce more fruit or it's going to remain stale. You guys catch that this morning? Hopefully. If not, call me. Sit down. We'll talk about it. I'm here for that, honestly. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we, uh, as we pass this plate, Lord, I just I thank you for the fact that you want to give us discernment. But, Lord, it's not an end goal as much as it, it's a process. It's a, it's a walking with you. We cannot expect to hear your voice if we remove any parts of what discernment is. Lord, I pray that as we as we pass this, Lord, that um, you would speak to us. Give us discernment, Lord, on what you want us to give, how you want us to give it. Because your word says that we're supposed to give it joyfully. I pray that we can be biblically minded in everything that we do led by the Spirit. I pray pray that you would bless the offering and bless what goes in it so that we can bless the city with your resources. They're all your resources anyway. But you did say test us or test you in this. Lord, and I pray that we take you up on that offer. So we love you and we thank you and just bless this in Jesus' name. Go ahead.